0: Good morning, it's my uh, joy to read scripture with you this morning. Uh, This morning's passage comes from Mark 8, verses 22 through Mark 9, verse 1, and that can be found on page 895 of the Black Chair Bibles. So hear the word of the Lord from Mark. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of the Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. He strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and raised after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning. You made it. You are the frozen chosen, y'all. Let's briefly pray together. Oh, Father, as we come before you now, we want to sit under your word. We want to be men and women who are humble before you. And so, Father, we ask and we desire deeply that you would speak to us through this passage. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock in our Redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me begin with a question for you. What are your expectations of the Christian life? When you became a Christian, what did you think would happen? Maybe you thought the Christian life is all about being happy. I mean, Jesus, after all, did teach about the abundant life that He came to bring, Maybe you thought you'd be safe. You'd enjoy the safe confines of the church and the Christian subculture. You would be protected. Your kids would be guarded from the big, bad world. Maybe you thought you'd finally experience true self-realization. Jesus is going to take away your sins, and then he's going to make you awesome. And Jesus came to earth to gather people around himself And his aim for them is to help them recognize and realize their true personal potential. Friends, is this the Christian life? A trial-free life, uncomplicated, free from strain, a pain-free existence, a true me experience? You become a Christian, and Jesus kind of hands you a a crown or a scepter, and and he tells you, hey, you're going to be blessed. You have my favor. You're going to triumph in this life. This life is going to be one full of victory. And sure, now and then he may hand you a cross, but that's not the norm. It's the exception. Friends, is this the Christian life? What if struggle, what if suffering, what if sacrifice were the norm? and not the exception in the Christian life? What if Jesus actually hands you a cross when you become a Christian and not the crown? What if our expectations of the Christian life should be different? We're going to examine a passage together uh, this morning where Jesus's disciples had the wrong expectations, not only about Jesus, but about themselves. Here's the main point. You'll see it on your screen Uh, Let me encourage you to take notes and jot this down. If you're using uh, the bulletin, you'll see this main point in your bulletin. I trust this is the main point, uh, not only of the sermon, but the main point of this passage. Here it is. Jesus embraced the cross now, crown later mindset. So will you, Christian? Jesus embraced the cross now, crown later mindset. How about us? Now, before we dive in, we need to kind of take stock of, of where we're at in this book, in the Gospel of Mark. This is actually the last sermon in the Gospel of Mark for some time. We're going to dive back in next week to 1 Samuel. We started that several months ago. We're going to finish that off. We're going to come back to Mark. Don't worry. And Mark, the narrator, is very much interested in his gospel in showcasing the identity of Jesus. In the first half, chapters 1 through 8, we see Jesus as king. We've seen already his authority and his teaching and his healing and his miracles and his ability to forgive sins. It is a powerful portrait of King Jesus. But then there's this turn, there's this transition starting in chapter 9 where we come to find out that this king must suffer. And so our passage this morning serves as a sort of hinge, a transition to our story There's two points in this sermon. The first point is seeing his cross, verses 22 through 33. The second part or second point is embracing our cross. So seeing his cross and then embracing our cross. So let's look at verses 22 through 33. Notice in the story, uh, they're in Bethsaida now. and, And much like other towns that they've visited, Jesus finds a blind person who's begging him to heal him. And Jesus, notice, lays his hand on this man, but this time, for some reason, it doesn't work, <laughs> you know, and, and, and at least it doesn't completely work, right, and that's what we see here, and the man, notice, can see partially. He can see trees, and what that means is he's kind of seeing blurry, you know, people walking by, and it looks to him as if they're trees. You probably see like I can see today. If I didn't have my contacts on, I, I'm, I'm just like blind as a bat. You know, you take my contacts off, so for those of you that have prescriptions, I'm negative 6.5. Okay, so that's pretty bad. And uh, so I can kind of, you know, I can see movement. I can see people. I can see, you know, Joe Burrow running around maybe a little bit. Don't recognize his number. That's about it. So Jesus lays his hand on this man a second time. And this time, of course, his sight is fully restored. Now, the question that we're all asking is like, what's, what's up with Jesus. I mean, is he tired? Maybe, you know, he's been doing lots of miracles. Maybe he needs a nap or something. I mean, did Jesus actually need two tries? Maybe Jesus made a mistake the first time. He put his hands on his ears instead of his eyes, right? Or or maybe he forgot to say the secret magical incantation. We don't know. Now, of course, those things aren't true. We can rule all those possibilities out because we're dealing with God incarnate, right? The second person of the Trinity. The simple answer, and we know this from context, is that this healing is actually a parable. This is an object lesson. It's more than just a healing. Jesus is teaching. Okay, so what is he teaching? Well, friends, the blind man represents the disciples. We've seen for several chapters now, they don't fully see. They see Jesus a little bit. They understand some things about him, but they don't fully understand who Jesus is. Now, there's some encouragement for us today in this, as we're thinking about Jesus and Him offering up multiple touches, the first thing that we can see here is that only the touch of God can give us spiritual sight. And We can't make someone recognize Jesus. We, we can't argue or manipulate or even love someone into seeing and recognizing who Jesus truly is. It is God's work. And so you can pray and you can faithfully love and share and even persuade someone, but it is God who performs the miracle of giving someone faith, of giving someone spiritual sight. And for these disciples, spiritual sight was an ongoing process. Friends, sometimes God works in stages. Over the course of our lives, we'll need multiple touches in order to see Him better. This is why the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 that God would open up the eyes of their hearts. And he's praying for spiritual illumination because he knows that God is going to need to touch his people multiple times in order for them to see Jesus clearly. Christians do they need further touches. So what can we do? This may sound like a strange question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. What can we do to see Jesus better? But pastor, you just said that only God touches you. And you. Well, yeah, but there's some things that perhaps we can do that can put us in a better place where we can see Jesus, right? More clearly. So let me give you just three quick applications. The first one, perhaps it's the most obvious one and the most important one, and that is to pray like Paul for spiritual illumination. If you've been struggling in your Christian faith, if you've kind of been in a season of, of discouragement or you're kind of treading water or you're finding yourself not really excited about the things of God, let me encourage you to pray Ephesians 1:15 through 23. It's a wonderful prayer where Paul says, hey, pray to the Lord and ask him for spiritual illumination. The second application is to do what we're doing uh, on Sunday mornings, which is just to read and, and, and kind of think through the gospels. Maybe pick a different gospel like the gospel of John and ask yourself and pray for the Lord to show you what are the attributes of Jesus? What, what are his works? What are his mighty deeds? What does this tell me about Jesus? And then third application is to pick up a theologically rich book about Jesus, a Christological book about Jesus. Let me give you just a few examples. So if you're a new Christian, if you're a young Christian here, maybe you're not a Christian here, a great book is Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert. It's a book I've read with friends before. I've read with a non-Christian friend in the past as well. It's really helpful. It's short, maybe 100 pages. Another book, maybe, you know, if that's Christology 101, what's Christology 201? Christology 201, Knowing Christ by Mark Jones. It's actually Pastor Troglin's recommendation, so you can go talk to him about that if you're interested. This is a great book about the title, Knowing Christ. And maybe you're interested in something that's going to challenge you a little bit more, Christology 301. Okay, so here's a great book by the Puritan John Owen. It's called The Glory of Christ. I encourage you to pick it up. Maybe pick up the abridged version. It might be a little easier to read. But these sorts of books will help you to reflect upon the Scriptures and stir your affections for Jesus. Okay, so what happens next in our story? Look at verses 27 and following. Uh, The disciples and Jesus, they get on the dusty road, and they walk towards Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, notice Jesus asks his famous question, who do people say that I am? This is, of course, Jesus' great concern in his early ministry. And and, and he's doing everything. He's teaching and he's performing miracles. And all of this is aimed at helping his disciples, but also the crowds, get to know him better. Well, it turns out too many people, too many people in the crowds, including his disciples, actually, misunderstood him. The disciples confirm this. They say, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say that you're Elijah. And, you know, others say you're actually just a prophet. It's been 400 years of silence. We haven't heard from a prophet in a long time, and I guess, you know, God has sent a prophet, and that's you, Jesus. Friends, it's so easy to misunderstand who Jesus is, whether you're living in the first century or you're living in the 21st century world. The world finds it easy to relegate Jesus to a lesser status. They demote him, they diminish him, they sideline him, they classify him uh, alongside great historical influencers like Gandhi or strong religious teachers like Muhammad. These are the sorts of conclusions that the crowd came to about Jesus. You're just like John the Baptist. Ah, Maybe he's Elijah. I know he's a prophet. And so Jesus tweaks the question slightly. He gets personal. He turns to his disciples and says, okay, guys, but who do you say that I am? This is like the final exam after you've had three months of studying. I mean, he's shown them. He's taught them. They've seen it all. He's, you know, they've seen him walk on water. They've seen him heal lepers. They've seen him do incredible things, right? So are they going to pass the test? Done a good job. Um, they've not done a good job on the midterms, right? Well, what about this final exam? Well, notice Peter speaks up, and what he is saying here is absolutely astonishing. He says, You are the Christ. Now, I know if you're reading a CSB Bible, it says you are the Messiah. That's just another way of saying the Christ. Friends, from the very beginning of Mark's gospel, this has been the great concern of Jesus. He's been doing all these incredible miracles. He's been teaching with authority. He's been forgiving sins. He's been healing people, healing women uh, from lifelong bleeds. He's been doing all of these different things to showcase who he is. So who is Jesus? Peter says, yeah, I, I think I can see clearly now. You are the Christ. Now, what does that mean, Christ? It's not Jesus' last name, by the way. You know, it's not like kids uh, address Jesus in the first century as Mr. Christ, right? That's not the case. Again, it's translated in the CSB as Messiah. That is absolutely right. Christ is a title. So it's something akin to King Jesus. It also conjures up all these prophecies from the Old Testament about a Messiah who God would send to save his people. Peter rightly connects the dots between those promises and Jesus. Now, friends, we have to understand this is a breakthrough of monumental proportions. This is a miracle of faith, a miracle of understanding here. This guy finally gets it. He sees it. I mean, the crowds haven't gotten it. The disciples haven't gotten it. Peter hasn't gotten it up to this point. But here it seems like he gets it. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's account, Jesus says, Peter, it wasn't flesh and blood who revealed this to you. God revealed this to you. Brothers and sisters, every moment that anyone in our church confesses Jesus is such a precious moment. It is no small thing. It is no small thing that you yourself have confessed Christ. Maybe it was decades ago, maybe a few years ago, maybe just a few months ago. It is no small thing that your sister, perhaps, or your daughter, who after years of drifting and living spiritually nonchalant and apathetic, has now demonstrated all of a sudden real faith in Jesus. That is a miracle. It is no small thing when your 12-year-old reminds you to pray or asks you to read the Bible after supper or is eager to go to church and is demonstrating spiritual fruit because he has already confessed faith in the real Jesus of the Bible. That is a miracle. It is no small thing. And you know, as you walk into church this morning, I don't know where your heart has been. Maybe it's been heavy. Maybe you've been discouraged. Maybe it's been light and you've been encouraged. Just just following along our passage up to this particular point, thinking about God touching us and giving us the ability to confess Jesus, thinking about not only ourselves having that ability, but perhaps our loved ones and our friends having that ability. Listen, we have reason enough already. We can stop the sermon right here. We have reason enough to leave this place full of joy, full of joy. So it looks like Peter got the second touch of healing, doesn't it? he gets it. But wait a second, we got to keep reading this story. Was it the first touch or the second touch? Because there appears to be a problem with Peter's confession. He gets it, but he, he kind of gets it. He's, he's closer than he was before, certainly. But, but as you look at Jesus's response and Peter's response back to Jesus in verses 31 through 33, notice his understanding is still lacking. Let me read again verses 31 through 33. Then Jesus began to teach them, He's unpacking what it means to be the Messiah here. He begins to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter, what are you going to do? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See that? So Peter passes confessing Jesus 101. He fails utterly confessing Jesus 201, right? He's still kind of seeing trees. He gets to, you know, he knows a little bit about Jesus. He sees something about Jesus, and what he sees is probably true, but there's more there, and the more that's, that's there that Jesus is kind of teaching him, he initially kind of rejects. And so Jesus needs to touch him again. Notice Jesus starts to kind of color between the lines about who this Messiah figure actually is. He says he's going to suffer and be rejected and killed and then rise after three days He uses the title in verse 31, Son of Man, which is a title drawn from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's the passage we began our service with. And so there's this mysterious figure, one like the Son of Man, who comes to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and receives this kingdom. But surprisingly, Jesus is saying this Son of Man is going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be murdered. So what Jesus is doing is he's actually putting together two Old Testament texts. There is this Daniel 7, son of man, who receives an everlasting kingdom and whom all the nations will serve. Okay, that sounds great. Like, I kind of hope Jesus is that guy. He's the king, right? So yeah, that makes sense. Let's, let's make Jesus the son of man, right? But then there's an Isaiah 53, suffering servant who will be despised and rejected and slaughtered. Jesus says to everyone's surprise that they are the same person and that he is this person, that his kingdom will be established not through military force, not by physical means, but through his death and resurrection. And, of course, this is just like too much for Peter, right? I mean, look at how he responds in verse 32. Again, you know, he begins to rebuke Jesus And this is like when my two-and-a-half-year-old reprimands me for something, right? I mean, it's just pure silliness. Peter momentarily stops being a follower of the Messiah and starts trying to be a teacher to the Messiah. And Jesus, come on, man. Like, Messiahs don't die, you know? They're supposed to go off and defeat all our enemies, not be killed by them. This is not the way it's supposed to work, Jesus. You're the Messiah. Friends, have you ever tried to scold God before? In our weakest moments, if we're transparent, I think we all probably have. And here P- Peter encapsulates the partially wrong Jewish expectations for a Messiah. They thought, hey, Jesus, okay, if he's the Messiah, well then that means he's gonna overthrow the Romans and rule over us physically, and God's kingdom is here and and, and here fully and finally. So let's go, right? They've all been seeing trees. They need another touch from Jesus, and he's about to give that to them. Jesus, first of all, puts Peter back in his place. Notice he he needs to get Peter back behind him and under him instead of above him. And so Jesus counters one rebuke with another rebuke, and he says, get behind me, not Peter, Satan. That sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? Like, why is he bringing Satan into this? Obviously, Peter is not Satan. So what is happening here, friends? Well, remember this is back in Matthew four and Luke four, Jesus' temptation episode. Satan once offered Jesus a shortcut, didn't he? He could have all the kingdoms of the world without going to the cross. Peter is basically taking a page right out of Satan's playbook. Oh, the Messiah doesn't need to die. Come on, Jesus, like you can go on about this a different way. So Jesus explains the flaw with Peter's thinking when he says, you're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about human concerns. Jesus will not fit our earthly expectations of him. You might be an ancient Jew in the first century. You might be a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. We all want to mold Jesus according to what we want. We have certain expectations of him but they are not necessarily aligned with the promises of God in the Old Testament and the concerns of God in the new. And so we must let go of our worldly thinking. You know, this teaching would have come with the force of an electric shock to these disciples and the crowns, okay? You know, for us, the cross has become just too commonplace. You know, we've got jewelry and we've got, of course, crosses in our churches and our friends have tattoos on, you know, of crosses, We need to recover the scandal of the cross. We need to recover the shame of the cross. Cicero, a Roman philosopher who died 50 years before Jesus was born, he wrote this, quote, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is like killing a relative. But to crucify him, there is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. No Roman citizen would be, could be crucified in the first century. It was reserved for the worst of the worst, the criminals, the lowest scum of society. And so it, it, it just doesn't seem possible, friends. It doesn't seem possible that a, a king who will one day come in glory will now be told to carry a cross. That's like saying the future king of England must first publicly and wrongfully be shamed before his grand coronation. I mean, we, we, we shouldn't have a category for that. That's exactly, that's precisely the category we should have for Jesus and this cross of his. And according to Jesus, verse 31, the cross was necessary. Do you see that? The cross was necessary. In other words, there's a reason for it. There's a purpose behind this. The reason we should have this category where where Jesus, the king, uh, embraces the cross, where the king has a cross, is because this king has purpose and reasons for all of this. In fact, I can think of two reasons. First of all, our sin demands justice, doesn't it? Our grievous rebellion against a holy God demands a price must be paid, a price in blood, in fact. And Jesus on the cross paid it all, didn't he? A once for all sacrifices. We no longer need to go back to the Mosaic Covenant where we're sacrificing every single day. I mean, think about that existence. We have a once for all sacrifice in Jesus And so there is no Christianity without a cross because there's no forgiveness, there's no appeasement for God's wrath without the cross. But there's another thing that's going on here. The other thing to recognize is this. The cross was Jesus' path to glory. Notice here in his his little uh, teaching, it's not only suffering, rejection, and murder that Jesus would endure, he would be raised after three days. He, he would be raised as vindication from his Father. He would then ascend to the right hand of God the Father, and every authority and every principality and every power would be placed under his feet. That is the story of Jesus right now. He is sitting up on high, and all things are under his feet. Now, you're saying, Pastor, it doesn't feel like that. Well, his spiritual rule, as it were, is not public and physical just yeah. But friends, there is coming a time, Right? There's coming a time when what is private and what is spiritual will become public and physical. There's coming a time when every knee will bow, and yes, every tongue will confess that Jesus indeed is Lord. And so Jesus got the cross on his way to the crown. This is Jesus' story. Cross now, crown later. The king has a cross This is the great surprise of the last half of Mark. It's what absolutely stuns his disciples. We'll see that once we pick up in the gospel of Mark several months from now. So hold your horses or you can, you know, read the rest of the gospel. But all of this also means something for his disciples' lives too. And that's what kind of uh, brings us to the second point. So we've seen his cross. And now let's talk about embracing our cross. Verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. You know, in the church, in the modern church, in the American church, we are so tempted by a sort of soft prosperity gospel. Uh, Prosperity thinking has gone viral today in the church. It's maybe not loud and brash. It's a little bit more polished and mainstream, even respectable. It, It shows up every time we think, hey, you know, if I work hard for God, then he should work hard for me. We go to church and keep our noses clean and do a little extra and put a little extra in the offering plate or something, you know, then God should bless me. God should bless my family, my children, and give me a steady life. And so we sort of baptize the American dream, two and a half kids in the suburban life and a nice paycheck. We kind of Christianize that dream and tell ourselves that Christian faithfulness will lead to that. Listen, friends, this has become the primary narrative of many American Christians, and it's certainly a temptation for all of us, isn't it? Come to Jesus, and here's your crown. It's all going to be good now. Sure, you're going to have some ups and downs, but the downs are aberrations. The downs are occasional. It's not the norm. Friends, is this God's vision for the church? Is this God's vision for your life as a Christian, as a Christ follower? Let's let Jesus define normal Christianity for us, okay? Let's read, starting in verse 34. Calling the crowds along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying all kinds of counterintuitive and countercultural things, isn't he? I mean, in in verse 34, he's saying that if you want to be a true disciple, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you must embrace the cruciform life. Jesus' mission would cost him everything. Following Jesus will cost us everything. And and sure, there there are benefits, there are blessings to following Jesus. We want to affirm that. But you're going to need to lose your life according to Jesus. What Diedrich Bonhoeffer said 50-plus years ago is 100% true. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And I shared this story with our evening service folks several months ago. Uh, It's a story about a young Saudi Arabian woman named Shine. And Shine, uh, when she was 18 or 19, left uh, Saudi Arabia and went to study at a university in Dubai. And there she met some Christians that were about her age, and they started sharing the gospel with her and reading the Bible with her. And then miraculously, over the course of Uh, several months, she became a Christian. And you have to understand, and maybe some of you know this, but becoming a Christian in her world meant counting the cost, right? She was risking rejection by her Muslim family, or even worse, some have been killed for converting because of the shame it would bring the family. And so she goes home, I think it was over summer break, she spends a few months there, and her parents, who are so concerned about her, put her under house arrest. They trap her and they say, you can't go back to Dubai and to those Christians. You must stay here with me. And you have to just put yourself in her shoe, right? This is her family. This is her mom. This is her dad, her siblings. She loves these people. She's grown up with these people. She cares deeply for these people. But they're putting, them, putting her in a place where she's got to choose essentially between them and Jesus, and so this church in Dubai, they were Zoom calling her. Thank God for Zoom, right? Zoom calling her and having Bible studies with her, trying to strengthen her faith, trying to help her to hang onto Christ while loving her family. And her parents eventually released her and she had to make that decision as she left her house. I'm leaving perhaps for good, okay? She paid a price. Friends, what about you and me? What about you and me here in the United States? What's the price? What is the cost of our discipleship? We are a commitment-phobic people, aren't we? We want to keep our options open. We want to live free lives, no limitations, no restrictions, certainly no strain or struggle. We're also cost-phobic. You know, if there's a price involved in this thing, uh, Jesus, you know, it better be minimal. Like, can you give me the discount, Right? You know, I guess I'll sacrifice a little bit for your sake. I guess I'll sacrifice some of my comfort, some of my convenience, but maybe just this one time or for this particular person. Friends, it is possible that you could become so wildly successful in your quest to say yes to yourself that you end up gaining everything the world has to offer. It's possible for you to be so self-indulgent that you actually kind of gain the world. The world encourages it too, doesn't it? I mean, you do you. Follow your heart, right? Have it your way. You get ahead by getting more stuff for yourself, saying yes to what you want. Self-denial. What is that? I mean, that seems like the path to loss, not the path to gain. Why would you do that? But just look at what Jesus is calling us to, right? Jesus doesn't say, if you want to follow me, pick up your scepter, pick up your crown. He says, pick up your cross, deny yourself. And that's not necessarily, not necessarily denying yourself of luxuries like chocolates and cocktails and cigars. It could be that, I guess, but it's actually disowning yourself, renouncing yourself, renouncing your supposed rights to go your own way. What if life isn't actually about unlocking your personal potential? You know, um, what if the Christian life is about self-denial, primarily, foundationally, essentially? I get asked the question sometimes: "Hey, on um, what do you think, Pastor, about the Enneagram or like those personality tests that are out there?" And my response is something like this: You know, hey, I, I think those are they could be helpful. They help you get to know yourself. Uh, they help you get to know how to you know how you might kind of tick and work with other people, but there's an inherent danger in some of those tests. And I think the danger is that it kind of, when you invest in those kinds of tests and you become, some people are, very obsessed with those kinds of tests, all of a sudden you're doing a whole lot of navel-gazing, right? But look at Jesus. Look at his words here. Jesus isn't commending self-realization. He's not commending self-actualization. He's commending self-denial suppressing oneself in some manner for the sake of following Jesus faithfully and loving others faithfully. He's commending those who lay down their lives for others. Uh, He's commending those who aren't surprised by pain, who expect to suffer with Jesus, who anticipate bearing shame for Jesus, who learn to lament with Jesus as we think about him in the garden. Listen, friends, Christians who deny themselves pray something like this every day. Father, I'm here for you first, them second, and me last. That's the prayer of a true follower of Jesus. So let me ask you this question. What might the cruciform life actually look like practically? What does it look like practically? When we embrace the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, it really should change everything. Instead of nourishing slights and running from suffering that's inherent in life and love, we embrace Christ in the suffering. And this, in turn, brings life to other people, doesn't it? Now, think about this with me. Every family, every church, every group of friends, every community group is a sort of complex relational ecosystem, right, of, of health or unhealth, life or death. And when one person involved chooses to sacrifice or practice some self-denial or loses their life in some manner, well, what happens? What happens? It kind of injects a dose of life and strength and health into that relational ecosystem, right? Whether it's a marriage, a friendship, a family, whatever it might be. Because, friends, the structure of cruciform love is substitution. Me absorbing some pain, perhaps, or some discomfort, or some inconvenience for the sake of you. And isn't this precisely the nature of Jesus' cross? He died to give us life. And so our sacrificial lives can do the same for others as well. Like what? What does this look like even more specifically? Let me give you just a few quick snapshots, okay? So when a husband, after a long day of work, and he's completely exhausted, and it's been difficult, and it's been kind of lifting some heavy weights, so to speak, he's driving home, and he asks God to give him extra energy so he can engage with his kids and give his wife a break, That sort of self-denial and sacrifice brings life to the relational ecosystem of his family, right? Every time you share the gospel boldly with someone you know is antagonistic, maybe you risk the friendship or risk your reputation or risk a little shame. That is you paying the cost, and it may lead to life, right, for this person. Every time an exhausted young mom chooses to express patience and kindness and gentleness in the midst of her child's 47th disrespectful comments, and, oh, look, it's only 11 in the morning. Yeah. That will introduce life and health, stability into your family. When you look at your paycheck and you recognize, man, this is gonna, it's going to be a tight month, but you still give to your church or you give to your missionary friend because you know they're in financial strains, and you know, this means you can't do that one vacation, perhaps, or you can't buy as nice of a car, or you can't give your children even something nice and extra. Listen, this is you practicing self denial for the sake of bringing life and health and vitality to the church. Every time you stand firm, on the Christian view of sexual ethics and gender identity, whenever you stand against the worldly ideologies that are kind of haunting Christians and haunting churches right now, when you you show that you are unashamed of Jesus, even when it hurts, even when it costs you something at school, or when it costs you something at the workplace, or when it costs you something in the neighborhood, friends, this is the cruciform life. You're paying the cross of discipleship to stand with Jesus, to bring truth and life to others. But, you know, it's not just all doom and gloom on earth, okay? Uh, you remember Paul exhorting the Philippian church, hey, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. And so we want to affirm that, right? Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. And so this life, even though it's marked by the cross, it isn't a joyless, cruciform life. In fact, I want to point out to you as we're coming to a close here, the promise that Jesus gives us in verse 35 and verse 38. He says, if you lose your life now, you'll gain it. And he says, if we are ashamed of Jesus now, he will be ashamed of us when he comes back in glory. And the opposite is also true, right? If we stand with Jesus now, if we endure strain and shame for the cause of the gospel in the path of obedience, he will stand with us when he returns. So there's a promise there, right? Expect the cross, but anticipate the crown. If we embrace the cross-shaped life now, we are guaranteed the crown-shaped life later. Hebrews chapter 12 says, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. For the joy set before him. He's experiencing that joy right now. He's gonna experience more of that joy. Yes, God is gonna experience more of that joy in the future when salvation is fully accomplished and we're all with him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Well, friends, it can be the same for us. For the joy that's set before us. For the crown that's set before us. For the hope of glory that's set before us for our blessed assurance, for our uh, the fullness of our salvation, for every tear that will one day be wiped away, we too can endure our little crosses and losses in this age. Now, for just a moment, imagine if you truly believe this. Imagine if you truly and fully believed that this is normal Christianity. If you believe this was everyday Christian, not, not occasional, not the aberration. Jesus doesn't, you know, kind of hand you a little cross now and then. Here's, here's a cross, don't worry, your next one is coming in five years, and in between you can relax, okay? No, friends, the cruciform life is the normal Christian life. What if you and I embrace this? What if Faith Church embraced this together? Cross now, crown later. Can you see how it would... It would just utterly transform our fellowship and our evangelism and our courage and our boldness and our love. Can you see how the cruciform life rightly practiced introduces life and strength and health and vitality into churches and into families and into friendships? One man who saw this and embraced this is Henry Light. Henry Light, L-Y-T-E. He was born in Scotland in 1793 His father and mother abandoned him at a very young age, and so he found himself in an orphanage for the first nine years of his life, no support, very little care. And while he was eventually adopted, much of his life was bearing crosses and enduring losses. He became a Christian in his early 20s and eventually a pastor. When he was 30, he had the immense privilege of being with his friend Abraham for the final months of his life sitting by his bedside, reading the Scriptures, praying together, and recalling all that God had done, all of the crosses and losses that God had called these two towards, and all of the Father's mercies that they had together received. And in the midst of those final months, he wrote an old hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. and it has an old tune, About 15 years ago, the good people of Indelible Grace have given it a new tune. In fact, we're going to close our service by singing this song. It has, over the years, become a very dear hymn for my wife Jenny and I. So I'm excited to sing it with you. But let me just, as, as a way to close, let me just read to you the first two verses. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me, they've left my savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me, thou art not like them untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me, show thy face and all is bright. Amen. Let's take a moment now to reflect on this passage.